Nuclear weapons. We are told all the time by politicians, power brokers, and our so-called leaders that, hey, we've got them. Why don't we use them? Without them showing any real understanding of what these weapons are, what they do, and what their use would mean. But then you hear from someone, one of a small group of dedicated Catholic peace workers who put his future and his freedom on the line in order to bring attention to the threat posed by nuclear weapons. And he explains... If you look at the kilotonnage, that's how they measure the destructive capacity of a weapon. The kilotonnage of the very primitive atomic bombs that we dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945 killed, you know, about 200,000 people. If you look at the kilotonnage of the Trident system, that's all of the Trident subs, all 16 of them, and you added up the kilotonnage of the Trident 2D5 missile system, it would kill 14 billion people. Well, that's almost twice the population of the planet. And that only represents one component of the triad of air, land, and sea-based nuclear weapons that we have. Pretty scary stuff. When you hear what nuclear weapons can do and know that there are people in power just chomping at the bit to use them, it can't help but smack you upside the head with the awful truth about what we're up against and the nature of that deadly seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, a profound interview with two of the Kings Bay Plowshares 7, Catholic peace activists who performed a nonviolent action at the Kings Bay Naval Submarine Base in Georgia. We learn what they've been dealing with since that action took place and they were arrested on April 4, 2018. We'll talk with Patrick McNeil and Martha Hennessy, two deeply spiritual individuals who were willing to risk everything to make the rest of us aware that the human species faces total annihilation unless the nuclear menace can be turned around and ended. Powerful, direct talk about nuclear weapons and the threat they hold for us all. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, Numbnuts of the Week for Outstanding Nuclear Boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than both Brad Pitt and Joaquin Phoenix together managed to put into their political Oscar acceptance speeches. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, February 18, 2020, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting off in the U.S., where on Thursday, February 6th, 
President Donald Trump appeared to reverse his position on a proposal to create a national nuclear waste dump at Yucca Mountain in Nevada. He tweeted, Nevada, I hear you on Yucca Mountain, and my administration will respect you. My administration is committed to exploring innovative approaches. I'm confident we can get it done. Oh, really? Two things. Is a tweet really the same as a change in policy? And if it is, that means that the proposed interim nuclear waste dumps in New Mexico and West Texas won't be interim at all. They will be the waste dumps, and they're not supposed to be. We'll keep you posted as this plays out. The Trump administration has released budget information for fiscal year 2021 for the Department of Energy. It's $1.2 billion for nuclear energy, $28.9 billion for the Pentagon to modernize nuclear delivery systems, $19.8 billion for the National Nuclear Security Administration to modernize the nation's nuclear stockpile, and a 46% reduction in fees to the Los Alamos National Laboratory for cleanup, taking out $100 million, leaving just $120 million to clean up the mess they've already made. In Oregon, a chemical waste landfill in the small town of Arlington near the Columbia Gorge has been accepting hundreds of tons of radioactive fracking waste from North Dakota in violation of Oregon regulations. Some of the waste registered radium at 300 times the state's limit. In South Carolina, inspectors at the Westinghouse Nuclear Fuel Factory near Columbia recently found 13 pinhole leaks, as they describe them, that are supposed to keep pollution from dripping into soil and groundwater below the plant. But to subatomic particles from raped atoms, a pinhole is the same as the Holland Tunnel. In Japan, on February 12th, a 5.2 earthquake struck 50 miles southeast of the remains of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. And now... Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that's out of week. Ah, Japan. You can dish it out, but you sure can't take it. A group called VANK which stands for Voluntary Agency Network of Korea, created three satiric posters of the Radioactive Tokyo 2020 Olympics that feature Olympic torch runners in full hazmat, including masks, carrying green-flamed torches through the Fukushima landscape. Their clear intent is to link radiation contamination to the Tokyo Olympics, and the posters are eerily reminiscent of images created in 2013 by the Facebook group Rainbow Warriors. The Vank posters were put up in a site in Seoul, across from where the new Japanese embassy is being built, and the group posted pictures online. Japan has been furious, and to make certain that everybody in the world felt compelled to see their precious radioactive Olympics being dissed, the foreign ministry actually issued an official complaint. Yeah, no better way to distribute the flack than to complain about it. Well, Japan has been sputtering its rage. Vank and their 100,000 South Korean and 30,000 international members have been laughing all over the place. And all Nuclear Hot Seat wants to know is, where can we get a set? And that's why Japanese foreign ministry that hasn't learned the meaning of satire You 
are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that sound a week. In Moscow, a radiation spike 60 times above normal was detected near a highway construction site. In Jakarta, Indonesia, after radiation was discovered in a housing complex, residents were simply asked to not panic. Yeah. And in Malaysia, the Prime Minister had announced that it will not build nuclear power plants until there is a safe way to dispose of the radioactive waste generated. Smart man. We'll have this week's very special interview with two of the Kings Bay Plowshares 7 in just a moment. But first, good news about the Nuclear Hot Seat website revamp. It's still at least a month away from being launched, but the web designer and I have finally figured out the basic architecture for the new site. The best news is that the shows will now be searchable by keyword in the title. If you want to access a show where the interview or full-length special has featured Fukushima, Chernobyl, Hanford, the Olympics, or any other subject, that word will have appeared in the title, and it will come up with a simple search. There will also be a single page which lists all of the episodes in short form and lets you click straight through to them. We still have a lot of the details to hammer out, and the work is going a lot slower than originally anticipated but know that the wait will be worth it when you see the final vision. Of course, with all of this website redesign and implementation, the expenses are mounting, and in order to cover them, we need your assistance. Everything at Nuclear Hot Seat is funded by your donations. It's the only thing that keeps the show going. That means there's no better time than right now to make that donation you've been thinking of giving. It will support not only the website makeover, but all the services needed to put the show itself together and get this information out to you and the rest of the world. So help us keep getting the truth about nuclear out, and in a more searchable form, with a donation. It's easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button to send a donation of any size. And to set up a monthly $5 donation the same as a cup of coffee and a nice tip here in the U.S., click on the big green donate button at NuclearHotSeat.com. Please do what you can now and know that however much you can help, I'm deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Here's this week's featured interview. The Plowshares Movement is an anti-nuclear weapons and Christian pacifist movement that advocates active resistance to war. The group often practices a form of symbolic protest, with no real damaging of weapons or military property. Nuclear Hot Seat previously covered the Transform Plowshares Now action at the Oak Ridge, Tennessee Y-12 nuclear facility, conducted by then 82-year-old Sister Megan Rice, Michael Wally, and Greg Borcha Obed. You can hear about the 2012 action and its aftermath on Nuclear Hot Seat number 444 from December 24th, 2019. Now, we catch up with the most recent Plowshares action. On April 4th, 2018, seven members of Plowshares conducted a peaceful action at the Kings Bay Naval Base in Georgia. They were found guilty on all charges on April 24th of 2018 and are still awaiting sentencing. We talked with Patrick O'Neill, 
a journalist, 71 years old, whose peacemaking efforts include extensive work opposing nuclear weapons, working for abolition of the death penalty, supporting immigrants, participating in new poor people's campaign, Black Lives Matter, and other anti-oppression and anti-racism efforts. He has spent more than two years in jail and prison for his piecework. Martha Hennessy comes from an activist heritage, being the granddaughter of Dorothy Day, founder of the Catholic Worker Movement. A grandmother of eight, she has been arrested and imprisoned, protesting nuclear power, war, the use of drones, the torture of prisons in Guantanamo and other prisons, and the use of starvation as a weapon of war in Yemen. I spoke with Patrick O'Neill and Martha Hennessy on Friday, February 14, 2020. Martha Hennessy and Patrick O'Neill, thank you so much for joining us on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. Thank you. Let's start with a little bit of background information. What is the Plowshares Movement? How did it get started, and what does it seek to do? Well, the Plowshare Movement really uh, was preceded by the anti-draft board movement that happened during the Vietnam War in the 60s, which was begun by Philip Berrigan, and then after the war ended, the peace movement kind of retooled itself to become the anti-nuclear movement and the anti-intervention in Latin America, basically an anti-imperialism movement. And in 1980, in September of 1980, Phil Berrigan, again with his brother, the Jesuit priest Daniel Berrigan, did the first plowshare action in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, where the eight members of that community were able to hammer on some nose cones of a nuclear warhead uh, it wasn't armed, of course, it was just under construction. And that was the uh, beginning of the Plowshares movement, and now it's in its 40th year. 2020 is the 40th year, because that action happened in, in uh, 1980. And uh, generally, the Plowshares movement has, has used symbolic yet real disarmament tactics. We tried to gain access to weapons, to uh, you know hammer on them with household hammers as a way of sort of symbolically beginning the process of disarmament. And I, I mean, obviously, people have different views on it. Martha can give a little bit of her feelings about it. Like in our case with this action down in St. Mary's, Georgia, at the, at the Naval Station Kings Bay, we were not able to get access to actual Trident submarines, which we could have dented with our hammer if we had, but we didn't. So our action became uh, one where we went to three different places and used blood and hammers and spray paint. It just so happens that down there in St. Mary's, they have statues of nuclear weapons, and we kind of smashed them as if they were idols. So you want to add something, Martha, too? Oh, thanks, Patrick. That's a good synopsis. I just want to add that as well as the symbolic hammering of, you know, swords into plowshares and the pouring of blood for atonement, we also bring an indictment, and also the Doomsday Machine book by uh, Daniel Ellsberg to um, leave a message to the military about the necessity of following the rule of law for nuclear disarmament. We are basically saying Martha just referred to the illegality of weapons of mass destruction. For Martha and I, as Catholic pacifists, we don't need the rule of law to tell us that nuclear weapons are immoral and illegal. We recognize that weapons of mass destruction that could that could kill, it could literally destroy the planet and the human experiment have no right to exist. So we approached going to Naval Station Kings Bay with the belief that the weapons being there on those ships, on those Trident submarines, 
have no right to exist. The only proper thing to do is to beat them into plowshares, which the plowshares movement, of course, is based on Isaiah 2.4, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. One nation shall not lift sword against another, nor shall they train for war anymore. So we're recognizing that weapons of mass destruction have no more right to exist than the crematoria and Nazi death camps. There's just things that are improper to life. And every weapon of mass destruction, and I think Martha and I would argue every weapon because we don't believe in war, but they have no right to exist. Martha, how long have you been involved with Plowshares, and what moved you to become part of this movement? I've only been involved just since um, this most recent action, which is, I think, maybe the hundredth such action. And I was moved by just a lifetime of watching uh, the nuclear arsenal remain in place and being protected and being expanded upon, while at the same time this horrific human need going unaddressed, as well as the absolute destruction of the environment and peoples, the manufacturing and testing and storing of these weapons. So... My very first arrest was in 1979 regarding Seabrook Nuclear Power Plant, and I did feel that the um, nuclear power industry was the other side of the coin of the nuclear weapons industry. And so I felt that I was over 60 years old. I had raised my kids. I had grandchildren. I felt that um, I had reached a place in my life where I could take such a stand as to engage in a plowshares action with my very long-term friends um, through the Catholic Worker and Atlantic Life community. Patrick, how long have you been involved, and what was the motivation when you first became involved in the plowshares movement? My first plowshare action was in 1984, uh, and it was interesting. The day that we did that action happened to be Earth Day, Easter Sunday, and Passover. And eight of us went to Martin Marietta, which is now called Lockheed Martin, but they were manufacturing the Pershing II nuclear weapon, which was a very destabilizing nuclear weapon at the time because the United States was putting the Pershing II and the cruise missiles at different places around Europe and targeting every city in, and then, then in the Soviet empire. So one of our co-defendants was from Sweden, and he was acting because he didn't want the Pershing II and the cruise on, on Western European soil. Todd Kaplan was also a devout Jew. Jim Perkins was a Buddhist. We had a very interesting interfaith group, and we were able to hammer on some components that were it was at a manufacturing plant, some components of the Pershing II. Subsequently, I spent two years in federal prison for that. So that was my first time. This is my second plasher action in which I was involved as an actor, specifically planning to risk arrest. Other times I've helped out on plowshare actions but as an unindicted co-conspirator, I suppose. But it's, this is really my second time that I'm, I'm going to be sent to prison for it. Why was the Kings Bay submarine base chosen as the site of this action? Well, the plowshares action that occurred in 2009 called the Disarm Now plowshares action, they went on to the uh, sister, twin sister uh, naval base out in Kitsap, Washington State. And so with Kings Bay, we felt that that was a base that, you know, had protests on a regular basis at the gate, but there had never been 
a plowshare's action there. And we really did want to target the Trident uh, nuclear system, the most deadly component of the U.S. nuclear triad. Tell us more about the Trident submarines and what makes them so deadly. I've been acting against Trident now since its inception. You know, Jimmy Carter was the one who brought the Kings Bay Trident system, the southeast port for Trident to Georgia, of course, which was his state. And uh, back in uh, 1986, uh, at Cape Canaveral in Florida, 5,000 people marched on Cape Canaveral when they began to flight test the missile system that is on the Trident sub. It's called the Trident 2D5 missile. Again, the Trident 2D5 missile is probably unequivocally the most diabolical weapon ever created by humanity. First of all, it's a first strike weapon. And one would have to ask themselves, why would you need a first strike nuclear weapon only if you were going to use it first? That's the whole point of it. And so we developed a weapon that was very destabilizing at that time in the nuclear arms race because it sent a message to the Soviet Union that we would use nuclear weapons first. If you look at the kilotonnage, that's how they measure the destructive capacity of a weapon. The kilotonnage of the very primitive atomic bombs that we dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945 killed, you know, about 200,000 people. If you look at the kilotonnage of the Trident system, that's all of the Trident subs, all 16 of them, and you added up the kilotonnage of the Trident 2D5 missile system, it would kill 14 billion people. Well, that's almost twice the population of the planet. And that only represents one component of the triad of air, land and sea-based nuclear weapons that we have, why would we build a weapon that could kill 14 billion people? Like, does anybody think about this, how absolutely horrific this is? And so, I mean, we were trying to call attention to this madness. What went into the planning of the action and how long was the lead-up to it in preparation? I would say more or less around two years, and um, that was uh, an extended length of time compared to many of the plowshares' actions. But we'd simply begin with coming together and doing the daily Catholic readings, the universal readings, and contemplating what the New Testament teachings bring to us in terms of how we are to be disciples of Christ in our own times in the 21st century. And so there was a lot of praying and discerning and studying, learning more about the different uh, nuclear weapons systems and building community together, just being together, sharing together, cooking. We would meet perhaps one weekend a month for this process. The date chosen for the action was the anniversary of Dr. Martin Luther King's death. April 4th, and it was chosen in 2018. Why was that day selected? Martin Luther King, of course, was a native of Georgia, and we very much wanted our action to address the connections between U.S. imperialism, U.S. racism, U.S. militarism, and U.S. consumerism, materialism. So what, that was what Martin Luther King called the triplets. I mean, Martin Luther King, very, very early on, opposed the Vietnam War. He was a Christian pacifist. He spoke out very clearly about nuclear weapons and how immoral they were. You know, I guess we were enamored by 
uh, the legacy of Dr. King and, and what he represents to the peace movement. So it seemed like it would be a way of honoring his legacy. I mean, you could say more, Martha. Well, I would just add that I myself personally believe that his assassination was a state killing. I think that was proved in the 1999 civil lawsuit. And the 1960s were horrendous in terms of the killing of leaders that we had such hope for. The actual action that you did took place, as I said, on April 4th of 2018. Describe to us what you did and how it unfolded. For myself, the seven of us um, went on to the base and then we split into three groups and myself and Claire Grady from Ithaca Catholic Worker, we went to the administrative building, the Strategic Weapons Facility Atlantic, the nerve center of, you know, the control of the nuclear submarines and We put up crime scene tape. We poured blood on the threshold of the door. We posted an indictment that referenced the uh, U.S. Constitution, the laws of the United States, the United Nations Charter, the Nuremberg Principles, and the obligations to the Nonproliferation Treaty. We posted that on the door, saying that this was a location of war crimes planning. And I also um, left the book The Doomsday Machine by Daniel Ellsberg, and I spray-painted May Love Disarm Us All. And then Claire and I went over to what we call the Missile Shrine, where Patrick and Mark were, and I'll let you take that from there. So we had uh, found on Google Maps and had heard that they actually had a, a shrine to nuclear weapons on the base, which was like a public gathering place. It's near the administration building where Martha went. I guess it's when people come in from the public on the base. They see literally, I don't know, there's probably 10 or a dozen statues that are exact replicas of the weapons of mass destruction that have been on the Trident submarine, including the D-5 missile. So we were able to find this missile shrine on Google Maps. And so Mark and I went there, and I had actually gotten a couple of hammers that were made out of melted-down guns from Shane Claiborne, who founded The Simple Way in Philadelphia. And he was working with Quakers who were actually melting down guns and making them into gardening tools. And so he sent me a couple of those, and you know, we were going to literally smash the idols. I mean, I can't really think of an idol that could be more grotesque than ones of weapons of mass destruction. But we couldn't tell from Google Maps that these idols were actually made of solid cement. So when I hit it with my hammer, the head of the hammer just broke off. So the idols were pretty much impenetrable. But we did uh, spray paint idol on them. I threw blood on the logo of the base. And we sort of just identified these weapons and this place as idolatrous, and we marked it as such. We had three banners between the three groups, and Claire and I posted We used um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s logo, the ultimate logic of racism is genocide, and we drew upon that to say the ultimate logic of trident is omnicide. And Steve Kelly, Jesuit priest, uh, Liz McAllister, widow of Phil Berrigan, and Carmen Trotta of the New York Catholic Worker, they went to the nuclear warhead bunker site, and they held up a banner that read, nuclear weapons, illegal and immoral. And they 
cut through, I think, one or two fences before they were apprehended. And that was the extent of their action, to stand there and pray and to read from their statement explaining who they were and that they came in peace. And when they were arrested by the soldiers there, um, they identified themselves very clearly. And so all three of the sites and the arrest scenarios were very calm and very peaceful. This all seems like very low-grade vandalism. What was the arrest like? What happened when you were discovered doing these actions, and how were you treated? The focus was on the group that went to the nuclear warheads because of the security issue. For us, we had to wait around for an hour. Claire and Mark and Patrick and I were all at the Mitchell Shrine site, and we just simply waited, and it took probably an hour for them to finally arrest us. Were you shackled in any way? I know that when Sister Megan Rice and the others broke into the Y-12 facility, when they were apprehended, they were shackled by the plastic handcuffs that they were shackled very tightly and that some damage was done and they were forced to sit there for many hours in the cold. Did you face anything like that? I think we were handcuffed. I forget if they used plastic cups on us or not, but we were brought to a, uh, whatever their police station is on Naval Station Kings Bay, and we were kept in chairs awake all through the night wearing the handcuffs, so it was very unpleasant, that's for sure. I wouldn't say that we were abused in any way. That's the way all people who are arrested are treated. But they did keep us up all night and interrogated us. It was definitely probably 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning before we actually were transferred to a jail where we could take a nap. Also, one of the things is that the reason that Martha and I have pretty severe guidelines as we face sentencing, what's yours, Martha, 18 to 20 months? Yes, 18 to 21 1821, and my guidelines are 21 to 27 months. So even though our behavior was characterized as vandalism, obviously the government's not treating it like vandalism. And one of the things that they used as an aggravating factor to give us a more stiff sentence was that we risked death. That was the government said, we risked death, meaning we risked our own death by going onto the base. There's two things I want to say about that. First of all, there's a real irony in that that seven pacifists are being sent to prison longer because they risk death. But the court is not saying anything about the risk of death associated with the Trident D-5 missiles that the court is essentially protecting. They risk the death of all of the human experiment, of everybody's life on the planet, of all of creation. So I find it sort of absurd that we're the ones who are getting extra prison time because you risk death. But the other thing that's important is that Martha and I and and our five co-defendants we actually worked very hard to convey a message of nonviolence to the police and to the uh, other soldiers and Marines who were at the base. And we spent a lot of time actually role-playing, like rehearsing what it would be like to encounter somebody with a gun or a weapon in the dark on this base. And so we role-played that. Some of us played the guards, some of us played the soldiers, and some of us played ourselves. So what we decided to do is when we were encountered by the police, we would yell out to them immediately, we come in peace, we are unarmed, we represent no threat, to let them know that we were pacifists, that we were people of peace. And in both cases of apprehension, 
when Carmen and Liz and Steve were apprehended at the uh, bunkers and when the four of us were apprehended at the missile shrine, never were any guns pointed at us, never were the police or the U.S. Marines alarmed to the point that they felt that we were a threat. And I think that speaks volumes to the fact that we made a lot of effort to not risk death. We made a lot of effort not to uh, endanger our lives. And so what happened was, and this is one of the more humorous stories that came out of this, as Martha said, we stayed at the missile shrine for an hour, but I actually think it was a lot of police cars went by, but they didn't stop. You know, they just looked at us and kept going. They obviously didn't perceive us as much of a death threat. But anyway, finally, uh, several police cars pulled up and the police all got out of the cars and they were a good distance, maybe, maybe a hundred yards away from us. And we yelled out to them, we come in peace. Uh, we represent no threat. We're unarmed. And so one officer by himself walked up to us very slowly. He had no gun drawn. Officer Carter was his name. And when he got close enough to see that we had hammered on things and that we'd spray painted, his first words to us were, now you all know you're in a bit of trouble, don't you? And that was it. We all cracked up laughing. So I think that the, that our nonviolent tactics and our role playing worked exactly as it was supposed to. At the trial, what were the charges that you were facing? The charges that were leveled against us um, after our action, there were four of them, three felonies and one misdemeanor. The first charge was conspiracy, which carries a 10-year sentence. Also, we were charged with the depredation of government property. I think that's like another five years. And destruction of naval property was the third count, another five years. And then uh, trespassing, which is a misdemeanor of six months. How did the trial play out? I know that you were prevented from even mentioning your religious convictions or from mounting what you call a necessary defense. Explain what that is and explain what it was like to be in that courtroom. I just want to say that uh, Friday evening of October 18th, I think it was, we were given the parameters, the rulings to follow, and the judge, uh, Lisa Godby-Wood, essentially stripped us of any defense, religious faith, necessity, and international law. And we went on trial uh, Monday morning, so we were just given no capacity to uh, mount any kind of defense, and our expert witnesses were not allowed to testify. Well, Martha's right. We were very, very limited in what we could say. Since there were seven of us, and many of us were acting as our own lawyers, we were able to say things. The jury did learn quite a bit about our intent and our motivations, but uh, we had to slip it in. I guess we had to be strategic about it. But I think that something more important to, to say about what made our case unprecedented from a legal perspective was that we attempted, well, we didn't attempt, we did use the Religious Freedom Restoration Act as part of our defense. What is that? The Religious Freedom Restoration Act is a law that was passed by Congress during the Clinton administration that basically gave extra protections to people who had sincerely held religious beliefs from being sanctioned by anybody, including the government, for engaging in their religious practice. Now, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act has been used also by a lot of conservatives, but not only. Uh, for instance, recently in Arizona, a man who had brought food and water into the desert 
to leave it on trails for people who were migrating from Latin America to the United States was, I forget what his charges were, but they were pretty severe. They were felonies uh, for doing that. And he used the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and he was acquitted. There are five criteria associated with the Religious Freedom Restoration Act that you are a religious person, that your religious beliefs are sincerely held, that you can make the case that the government has, has uh, burdened your practice of your religious faith by its sanctions. Then the fourth part is that the government has a compelling interest to protect its assets, or in this case, Naval Station Kings Bay. And that the fifth component is that if you find that we are indeed sincerely religious people who have been burdened, that you use the least restrictive means to punish us. So the court did find that indeed, this is the court's own language, pretrial court ruling that was a 60-page ruling by the magistrate. And he found that we, we had sincerely held religious beliefs, and that we engaged in prophetic, sacramental, symbolic denuclearization at King's Bay. Those were not our words. Prophetic, sacramental, symbolic denuclearization. So they did find that we met the three main criteria of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, but the government said because their compelling interest was to protect their assets at the base, that we could not actually use the Religious Freedom Restoration Act as part of our defense to the jury. So we're considering appealing that to the Federal Appeals Court. Uh, we're still discussing that, but anyway, it was a breakthrough that it, rather than just kind of characterizing us as being religious fanatics or people who took the law into our own hands, that indeed our motivations were valid and, and based on our religious convictions. So that was, that was a breakthrough. All seven of you were found guilty on all charges. What has that done to your lives since then as you await sentencing? Well, it's been quite a long process already, and certainly we're nearly two years post-action. And for myself and my family and my community, um, it's you know obviously a hardship to live with uncertainty, similar to living on a trap door. We do expect that the sentencing hearing will be scheduled by late March, early April, but yes, it's a waiting game, and that is all part of the uh, punishment and the psychological torment. But for me, uh, life goes on. The work continues to need to be done at the Houses of Hospitality and with my family. So I am, I am grateful for whatever time that I have had to um, be out of prison. And I do feel that I trust that it's all in the hands of God. The government from the get-go, has been very, very punitive with us. Originally, the government denied us bond, so we were in jail for seven weeks before they allowed us to have bond, but our bond was, Martha and I had $50,000 bond. We had to wear ankle monitors and be under house arrest. Martha and I have now been either incarcerated, under house arrest, or under a curfew now for almost two years. The second anniversary of our action, April 4th, will be two years that we've been very, very restricted. We're not, many times we weren't allowed to leave our house. Uh, the probation officers in our cases kept very tight reins on us. And I think by the time Martha and I get sentenced to prison, we will have spent more than a year of 24-hour days confined to our house. And despite the fact that we've spent a year locked in our houses, not allowed to leave, 
that will not count at all towards our sentencing guidelines. So they have, they have been very, very punitive with us. But I mean, I think for Martha and I, we're, we're, like Martha said, she's a mother, I'm a father, I have eight children, I have two grandchildren. It's not easy for my family. In fact, both of my grandchildren have been born since this action happened. My daughter had to have postpartum care in a hospital after the baby was born. I wasn't allowed to go to the hospital because it was in a different federal district, even though it was only 30 miles from my house. And two of my sons have both been hospitalized in the last six months. And uh, I wasn't allowed to go to the hospital for both of my sons initially before I got permission. Well, of course, you know, it takes a while to get permission to do these kind of things. And when someone's in a hospital, it's an emergency, but you can't just go to the hospital because you're under house arrest. So there are constraints on us. But, you know, I try to keep this into some perspective because one time when I was in jail in Florida following our plowshare action that we had down there, Phil Berrigan was interviewed in the Orlando Sentinel. And, you know, the Orlando Sentinel recognized that Phil really was the person who really founded the plowshares movement. And they interviewed him at his home in Baltimore and Liz McAllister, of course, too, who's now Martha and I's co-defendant. And the reporter asked Phil, how much time have you and your wife spent separated by jail or prison during your marriage? And Phil, who had ended up when he died in 2002, spending 11 years of his life incarcerated for his anti-war work, said that they had spent about half their marriage separated. But the quote that Phil gave the reporter was a very prophetic quote and put things in perspective for me. He said, we don't want to appear heroic. The sacrifices which people make for war every day are far more grievous than what we have done. You know, Martha and I are going to go to prison. Our families are going to suffer, but Martha and I aren't going to come out of prison with PTSD. We're not going to come out of prison having, uh, having killed somebody or risk death. We're not risking death, literally, in any way. Our suffering's real, but it's, it's nothing compared to the tens of thousands, millions of people who have died as a consequence of war. In the 20th century, 170 million people died as a direct consequence of war, and more than 90% of them were civilians. War is what the horror is, not resisting it. That brings me to an important point, and that is that previously I've interviewed Sister Megan Rice, Greg Borcha Obed, and Michael Wally, who are the three who broke into a plowshares action called Transform Plowshares Now. They broke into the Y-12 National Security Complex in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Now, at the time, Sister Rice was 82, and her co-defendants were both in their 60s or perhaps upper 50s. With this action, the youngest of the activists involved is 55, and the ages range up to Elizabeth McAllister, who's 78. Why have there been no younger participants in these activities, in these actions? And what does this say about the future of the plowshares movement and, indeed, the anti-nuclear movement? Well, a correction, um, Liz is actually 80 years old now. She was, uh, I guess, 78 or 79 at the time of the action. And this question of whether young people should be doing these actions, I don't see the importance of that point. We continue to do what we can, similar to the works at the Houses of Hospitality. Um, you know, young people today are struggling to 
any of them who have families are working very hard to make ends meet, and students come out with significant debt from their educations, and it's much harder for them to engage in alternative lifestyles. But I feel that people need to come into their maturity. Uh, and there have been very young people who have participated in Plowshares' actions in the past, but for myself, coming into maturity was very uh, important part of actually being prepared for such an action. And I have great hope that um, these actions will continue. They have to. I mean, we're now talking about spending $30 billion on upgrading the nuclear arsenal. And so I have great hope for the future. There's something out of our trial that is, is sort of very telling here. At the beginning of a trial, there's jury selection. And so we had a jury pool of 73 people who initially were going to be narrowed down to the 12 who were going to sit on our jury. And the judge asked these kind of general questions to find out whether or not the jurors are actually impartial or not. Judge Wood asked the panel, the 73 people, if any of you have strong opinions about nuclear weapons, pro or con, will you raise your hand? Not one person in the jury pool of 73 people raised their hand, which leads me to believe that living 24-7 on hair trigger alert with every major city on the globe 15 minutes away from total destruction has become somewhat normal to earthlings, not just to people living in the United States. We've come to accept the nuclearism as kind of being a normal part of our lives. We, we just don't think about it. Even one of the women who was a supporter of ours down in, in Georgia, and who's a, an activist, you know, she works on climate change, she works on environmental issues, she opposes the death penalty in Georgia, which is very active. She said, you know, nuclear weapons aren't even on my radar. She doesn't even think about it. But I will say this, I think, you know, like what Martha's saying, but I think the hopeful sign is that while youth are not addressing global militarism very much and nuclear weapons, you are seeing a very, very strong resistance coming out of youth, not of just the United States, but of the world with regard to global warming and climate change. And I think that movement is really building. And of course, my belief is that we can't stop global warming unless we stop global militarism. And I think eventually that's going to become obvious to people who are working to stop global warming and they're going to see that we've got to abolish war and nuclear weapons in order to make that happen, that we have to live in peace as a global community if we want to survive. What kind of support have you received from the public and from notable individuals, those who are in the public eye? There is a petition that has been posted on the website for quite some time now, and we do have some big-name people who have signed on, uh, Noam Chomsky, Desmond Tutu. I can't remember all the names, but there certainly are plenty of people in support of nuclear abolition. In fact, the majority of the people around the globe are. And we also have a uh, wonderful support group who has been taking care of the entire community. And we also have had some good media coverage. The New York Times refused to report on it at all, and they had reported on the 2012 action with Sister Megan Rice. But we had a good article written by Paul Eli for the uh, New Yorker magazine. And there has been some good alternative media coverage of this action. 
and folks at ICANN, the International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons, they have been uh, very supportive. We feel that the Pope, in his most recent declarations regarding nuclear abolition, would support this kind of a desire to point out these weapons systems and their significant danger. I feel that we've received quite a bit of incredible support. And also letters have been written to the judge asking for leniency with the sentencing. I'm grateful for the support of Nuclear Hot Seat. I think that this radio program is looking at the nuclear arms race, nuclear power, these issues around global warming and militarism together in a way that's pretty much unprecedented on the radio anywhere that I've seen. So this is great support as far as I'm concerned. I'm honored to be able to provide that information, and thank you for noting it. Now, what can the listeners of this program, who are highly motivated to help, what can they do to support you and, indeed, the entire Plowshares movement? Well, they could come to our sentencing hearing. That would be quite an an eye-opener and an education. They can go to the website, kingsbayplowshares7.org, and any kinds of donations are always very helpful for the expenses that we face. And wherever folks are, if they can, you know, engage in local uh, nuclear abolition efforts, I would certainly recommend that. And for people to simply educate themselves. The Bulletin of Atomic Scientists has put the doomsday clock at um, 100 seconds to midnight, the closest in our nuclear history. And so I think any efforts at self-education, educating each other, and similar to what we're witnessing with the indigenous peoples really standing up to the fossil fuel industry, I think we have to do the same with the nuclear industry. We have to show up in large numbers at these sites and make known our desires to have these weapons dismantled. Anything you would like to add, Patrick? One thing we didn't talk about is uh, that Father Steve Kelly, the Jesuit priest who is part of our group, and he's a Jesuit theologian, he has been in jail in southeast Georgia since this action happened almost two years ago. It's hard for me to imagine that a 71-year-old priest has been kept in a jail for this long, for a really nonviolent action that did not involve profit. And here he is doing all this time. And it's important to note that Father Kelly has now, during this last two years, he has now surpassed more than 10 years of his life incarcerated for actions against U.S. nuclear weapons. And six years of that, he has spent in solitary confinement because he refuses to work in the prison because prisons function because of inmate labor and he won't do it. So, I mean, it's amazing to me what he's sacrificing and what he's uh, an example he is for the rest of us. I have to say that I have done interviews on Nuclear Hot Seat for almost nine full years now, at least one a week, and rarely has one moved me as deeply as this one has as to your commitment, your aims, your generosity of spirit in putting your lives and your bodies on the line on behalf of the future of all of us. We will link to whatever we can link to so that the information is available to the listeners. And for now, with the 
deepest gratitude for what you have done and continue to do. I want to thank you for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you, Libby. Thank you so much. Martha Hennessy and Patrick O'Neill of the Plowshares Catholic Pacifist Movement, two of the Kings Bay Plowshares 7. Note that given the felony charges, the maximum sentence possible is 20 years, 6 months. But their sentencing guidelines call for 21 to 27 months for Patrick and 18 to 21 months for Martha. Still, this is excessive in light of mitigating factors such as the so-called crime did not involve violence or profit, just a little bit of vandalism and graffiti. Sentencing may be coming through any day now, so we urge you that if you would like to support these activists, you do so right now. Go to their website, Kings Bay Plowshares 7, that's the numeral 7, kingsbayplowshares7.org. There, you will immediately see two buttons to click. First, sign the petition asking for leniency in their sentencing. Do it now. It's a fast and easy move to make. Then, click on the Send Letters to the Judge button to get guidelines and contact information for asking Judge Lisa Godby-Wood to grant leniency. Please do not delay. We want all of our opinions to count. The international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons recently held a forum in Paris on February 14 and 15. We will link to their site where you can view any of the discussions that did take place. It will be on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 452. And some great news for people in the San Francisco area. A special half-hour edition of Nuclear Hot Seat will be broadcast on radio station KPFA-FM on International Women's Day, Sunday, March 8, between 2 and 4 p.m. We don't have the exact start time yet. It will be an interview with Mary Olson of GenderAndRadiation.org on the disproportionate impact of nuclear radioactivity on women and children, especially little girls and how this increased vulnerability is not factored into measuring what are considered acceptable exposure levels. KPFA is at 94.1 FM in Berkeley, California, and also available as live stream at kpfa.org and on iTunes. If you're not in San Francisco and can't get KPFA online, don't worry. I'll have that interview with new information coming up in the near future on Nuclear Hot Seat. And if you do hear it in the San Francisco area when it's broadcast, please do me a favor and contact the station by email or phone and say, wow, we need that kind of information more often. Why don't you carry Nuclear Hot Seat? It would help create a groundswell of support to get the show broadcast regularly in this major market. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, February 18, 2020. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN, apnews.com, 
NukeWatch.org, TheState.com, AikenStandard.com, Bob Alvarez, OregonLive.com, NWPB.org, TANDFONLINE.com, TheLondonEconomic.com, Greenpeace.org, Weatherboy.com, JapanTimes.co.jp, Voluntary Agency Network of Korea, or VANC, PRKorea.com, Japan-Forward.com, TheMoscowTimes.com, TheJakartaPost.com, TheFerret.scot, TheEdgeMarkets.com, DW.com, News.un.org, PowerTechnology.com, and activists around the world who keep me informed as to what the nuclear situation looks like in their neck of the woods. A reminder that Nuclear Hot Seat is now available on all your favorite podcast platforms. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe. Or even better, go to our website, nuclearhotseat.com, and sign up there. There's a yellow opt-in box, put in your first name and email address, and every week you will have delivered in your inbox an email with a link to the show and a brief summary of what you will find inside. Thanks to all of you for listening and for joining with Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers around the world in 123 countries on six continents and counting. And if you haven't already done so, go to our Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook page, like it, share it, respond to a post, and repost the episodes so it can get out to the people who know and love you and want to follow what you're following. Now, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to send a donation of any size to nuclearhotseat.com. We will be really grateful for your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2020 Libby, Halevi, and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that once you know the truth about nuclear, how can you not be against it? There you go. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep. Because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.